At the UPS Store, we want to make this summer the summer of shipping. Summer Shipalooza. So you can start crossing items off your must-ship list. Like the vintage film camera your college kid needs for class. Or the vase you told your mom you would send her ages ago. And with our pack-and-ship guarantee, your items arrive safe or we reimburse you. So stop by your local store today for everything you need to be unstoppable. Visit the upsstore.com slash guarantee for full details. Available at participating locations. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Di Dami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and James McDonald. Tonight on Fast, time to play defense with the S&P pulling back for a third straight day. One top technician is finding the biggest opportunities in some beaten down names. We'll tell you what they are. Plus, Solar Flare, the alternative energy stock that's showing signs that's set to shine much brighter. And just one more thing, why would Apple want to get into the car business? We'll be joined by top analyst Tony Sakanagi to break down the move and what it means for the stock. We start off with a corner of the market that is seeing some serious, serious froth. Take a look at some of these stocks. Battery tech company QuantumScape rising nearly 40% today after a nearly 30% gain yesterday. It's up more than 500% since August. C3AI was supposed to go public 30 to 40 bucks a share. Priced at 42 earlier this month, and today it closed at 177. And Fubo TV has risen by more than 10% in each of the last five trading days, bringing its gains over the week to more than 130%. So, what do these massive moves say about where we are in the markets right now, Dan? Well, Mel, you just said a corner of the market. I would say that they cornered the market in euphoria. This is stuff that we have not seen in a very, very long time. You can tell me why it's different this time. I will tell you that it's no different than it was in 20, uh, in the year 2000, which led to an epic, epic um, you know, crash in the market because of bubble valuations. But here's the thing. This is not just on the bankers. This is just not on the companies or the VCs or anything. This is investors. This is investors chasing this sort of price action, which is not particularly natural for all intents and purposes. You just mentioned this company, C3. It's C3.ai. Do you remember if you put a .com on your company 20 years ago, you'd see this sort of price action for the time being. You just mentioned this company Fubo that went public through a SPAC um, just a little while ago and this thing is just you know skyrocketing up 20% a day for the last few days. Again, I have people asking me about these names. I can't even keep track of all of them and how they're moving. It's not natural. It is a wave. It's a trading mechanism. There will be severe, severe losses in all of these things. It's a game of musical chairs and if you're the last one looking for a chair, it could get pretty nasty and pretty soon. I get it, maybe, if you're part of any of these companies, James, but, but when we said corner of the market, we meant corner of the market. I mean, unless you believe that these stretch valuations are permeating all of technology, is there some sort of broader risk to the overall markets if this corner of the market blows up? And we're not saying, by the way, that it will blow up or that the trading action is not valid. But I'm just saying, if these names severely pull back, is that some sort of systemic risk? Well, you have to understand the big picture. We are at or above valuation levels just prior to the crashes in 2001, in 2007, and in 1929. And so it would be appropriate here for the abatement of enthusiasm. However, in the case of QuantumScape, this is a company making batteries for EV, and EV is hot. If you look at what Tesla's done, Tesla's market value is equal to that of seven of the major car manufacturers combined with just one-third 
of the revenue potential uh, and just a fraction of the profits. And so there's a lot of hot money there. It's a huge market. It's 1927 all over again for the automotive sector and the euphoria in the market. This is what markets look like just before they come down hard. And I'm not surprised. However, there's still going to be opportunities for companies that are going to innovate. And as long as the enthusiasm keeps up, uh, we're going to see these valuations come up. But as it was mentioned, they will come back down. And sometimes it takes four years to come back after these crashes. Guy, 2000 has been cited. 1927 has been cited. Are we going a little bit overboard in, in terms of looking for comparisons to past market meltdowns? No, I, I don't think so at all. And, you know, a lot of people don't know this, Mel, but Tim Seymour actually teaches uh, catechism. He teaches religious mm -hmm. ed on Sundays. And I bring that up because I'm going to give you Ecclesiastes. Um, I believe it's chapter 1, verse 5. The sun rises and the sun also sets. I mean, you can go down the Hemingway route if you want as well. But I, my point is, when things are going great, everybody's on board. But the sun does set, and we've seen it in the form of a couple different names. Look at Fastly which went from 10 in March to 130 and then was cut in half in about a week and a half's time. Now it's on the rebound. Same thing with Zoom. I mean, Zoom was a $588 stock seemingly a few weeks ago, traded down to 385 So everybody gets all geeked up when these things are headed up. They go down a lot faster. And I don't think it's um, hyperbole or hyperbolic to compare some of the things we're seeing now to some of the times you just cited. At the same time, and Dan, I want to drill down a little bit more on this notion. We, we see the froth here, but can you say that we're seeing the froth in, in your MAGA complex, in your Microsoft, and Apple, no, it, and Google? I mean, if it's not there, then what's well, the danger right. to the market? Well, here's, this, here's the thing, Mel. I, I'll tell you this. That, that a few months ago, we would have said that Apple, you know, going from 15 times earnings a year ago to 30 times earnings at its current level was getting a little bit frothy. But they were driving most of the performance in the market at the time. And there's a lot of concentration in those names. Now we're seeing a broadening out. We're seeing the Russell 2000 um, rocket 30% in a month. We're seeing some of these names like Snowflake just double from their IPO in a matter of weeks. We've seen it in Palantir. We've seen it in just time and time again. We're seeing all these SPACs all of a sudden popping up on our screens as publicly traded companies, you know, merging with a private company and seeing them up 200, 300, 400 percent. That is not natural price action. You can tell me that it's isolated to a very speculative part of the market. I'll just tell you that's how bubbles burst. We always use that term bubble and people think it's impending that it's going to burst at any moment. That's not what we're saying. We're seeing these kind of valuations being stretched, a total disregard for valuation. So I'd every day of the week rather buy Apple and Microsoft at 30 times earnings than any of these names that are skipping up 20 percent a day that are trading at 50 times sales because we know they are not sustainable price levels, whereas Apple and Microsoft, they can live a very long time at those 25, 30 times earnings levels. At the same time, James, I mean, you were sort of defending maybe some froth in some stocks that show great innovation that are on the cutting edge that are in this uh, area of the market, this ESG area where there's a lot of funds going. So do you say, you know, so long valuation there, I got to go where the puck is, is as opposed to where the puck was. And then get into these stocks at this point. Well, you know, my bear suit is getting kind of tight at these valuations with these sky-high uh, moves of the index. And as was mentioned, the Russell 2000 has never gone up as high as it has in the last 
30 days in history in that time frame. Um, and so my bear suit's going to get more comfortable here in a little while. But we have to remember, back in 2001, there's a little company called Amazon, a company called Microsoft, a company called Dell. There will be winners that come out of what's coming. Um, and we want to be aware of them. And we want to position ourselves for these secular, transformative moves that this generation is institu instituting uh, with EV uh, and ESG in some of these areas. And so I'm excited about these areas, but I want to gobble them up on the way down that the market is going to correct. And we don't know when this correction or this crash will happen, but as we've all said, we know it's imminent. All right. Uh, let's go out the charts now and, and bring in Fundstrat's Rob Slimer. Rob, great to, uh, to see you before the holidays here. Um, we've got a panel of pretty bearish folks uh, tonight. And so I wanted to get your take. I know the charts are very young for a lot of the stocks that we were just talking about, whether it be QuantumScape or C3.ai. Um, but but what, do you, what do you make of, of charts like these when you see giant moves day after day, double-digit percent moves? Well, I always love the expressions, the client's expression, which is uh, even turkeys fly in a hurricane. And then we always get the calls from the clients say, well, turkeys can actually fly. But it, it's really indicative that we're getting to the later stages of some part of the move in the market. I'd be careful arguing that this is the end of the cycle. We don't see it that way at all. We think this is the end of this intermediate term move. And what I mean by that is that we've had a lot of stocks, particularly a lot of the smaller caps, that really haven't done a lot for quite a while between June and October. And they've really ripped. As someone pointed out earlier, uh, you know, the micro cap and the small cap indexes are up 30% since I think the October low. So that's a pretty big move and they should pull back in. I mean, if we look at the S&P 500, uh, you know, we track this indicator that measures the percentage of stocks with rising weekly momentum. And it moved from oversold levels in September where most of the cyclicals started to bottom and is working its way back into overbought territory. So we think as we get into January, early February, we're probably setting up in the market overall for about a 7 to 10% pullback on the S&P. And I think that's a very healthy consolidation or pullback within an ongoing bull market. So that's our first take. But there's lots of stocks that I think have been pulling back over the last, you know, call it three, four months. Like they're a little bit more defensive and they're not as sexy as some of the stocks we just talked about. But I think they're pretty timely. Like O'Reilly, for example, had this big move off of the March lows and it's really just been marking time now for almost four months. And it's right back to the 200 day moving average. It's pretty timely. It's weekly momentum's bottoming. We see the same thing in something like a Thor, right? It's, it had this big run and then it unwound, it's pulled back, like a lot of growth stocks, and actually looks like it's starting to turn up here from these levels around the 200-day. I think that's pretty timely as well. And then the last one, it's had a bit of a pop here, you know, Uber. But I think of this as a secular growth stock with that cyclical kicker that should participate once we get back to so-called normal. And this pullback into the, you know, call it the low 50s, high 40s is a pretty attractive entry point. I'd be looking at buying any one of those three stocks that I think will shield you for the broader pullback that we see in the market coming in the first quarter. Quick follow-up, Rob, follow in the 7 up, to 10 percent pullback in the S&P 500 that you're, you're seeing, which sectors and or stocks will do the worst in that pullback? Well, I, I think it's going to be growth and cyclicals that, that are, are likely to pull back. I mean, think about the mega caps. I think Dan just mentioned this. The uh, Microsoft and Apple are just trading sideways. I don't think see a lot of risk in those names. But some of the other uh, faster-moving growth stocks and the speculative names we've just talked about, I think all of those have to come back in. I also think that some of the cyclicals on this next leg up are probably vulnerable. We actually want to buy a lot of those names on that pullback through Q1 into Q2. 
All right. Rob, great to see you. Thank you. And happy holidays. Rob Slimer, fun strat. Tim Seymour has got his uh, tech issue straight now. He's also got a vest on and a holiday so, tie. So holiday festive is the theme tonight for uh, the Seymour household. That's what Tim, I'm here for. Uh, what did you make of Rob's charts? Well, I, I think, you know, the discussion about uh, an O'Reilly and, and even a Ford, I, I think these are, to me, very cyclical names. And, and the Ford story, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about autos, autos that may have a little bit more of, a, of an EV story to them. Um, I, Rob used another word also, though, that I think is important in terms of the frothiness. When you say secular, it, it's almost a euphemism for I almost don't care what I'm going to pay in a bull market for something. And that includes uh, some of the stocks that Dan outlined, some of the stocks that even you know, the other guys talked about. But, but it, it's software. It's gaming. Uh, and it's certainly even cloud. And, and so some of these stories, uh, I think, are ones that are, are certainly most at risk in a market pullback. Um, but, but the question is, which part of the market are you more impressed by? And to me, it's, it's the breadth of the market. It's, it's the fact that banks uh, and industrials and, and stocks that have really lagged for a long time are starting to break out. It's impossible to argue um, that there are pockets of the market that make no sense. Uh, I'm not sure uh, that we haven't seen that at other times, whether it was when, you know, when, when resources, you know, data is the new oil. Well, how about when people are paying almost anything for a commodity company or for a food company? Uh, and I just think that's the secular trend we're in. Guy? It's interesting. You know, he mentioned Thor Industries last night. What, what show comes on after ours each night, Mel? I Mad think it's Money, the with, Mad Jim Money with Jim Cramer, as you know. Thank you. I appreciate that. And last night, Jim had the CEO of Thor Industries on, uh, and they spoke to a lot of the things that we've talked about. I mean, the fact that the stock had a huge run, sold off on the comeback trail, mature company, a lot of growth ahead of it at a reasonable valuation. I agree to the earlier comment. Companies like that make sense. To the things we were talking about before, we had a really interesting conversation with Steve Leisman last week where, you know, tongue-in-cheek, he sort of went after us in terms of you just guys just buy stocks indiscriminately. And I think what we tried to point out is it's really on the back of everything this Federal Reserve and central banks around the world have done. They've said themselves that valuations don't matter. So when you hear comments like that, it empowers people to do things that they shouldn't be doing. I mean, this is not the OK boomer anybody out there, and please don't at me. But I would say for everybody that knows what Palantir <laughs> does, there are probably nine people that think it's the, the seeing stone out of Lord of the Rings, and that's problematic. Well, it is. It's just not that same one. <laughs> that's the problem. Coming up, Apple Car Chatter driving the stock higher today. What innovation is Tim Cook cooking up here? We'll be joined by Bernstein's Tony Sakanagi, the top tech analyst on Wall Street, for more on that. But first, guys got a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad chart. So what name does he call downright ugly? Guy's going to break it down for us after this quick break. At the UPS Store, we want to make this summer the summer of shipping. Summer Shipalooza. So you can start crossing items off your must-ship list. Like the vintage film camera your college kid needs for class. Or the vase you told your mom you would send her ages ago. And with our pack-and-ship guarantee, your items arrive safe or we reimburse you. So stop by your local store today for everything you need to be unstoppable. Visit the upsstore.com slash guarantee for full details. Available at participating locations. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Facebook under pressure for the second day in a row as the tech giant deals with an ongoing FTC investigation into its antitrust practices. Facebook's still up around 30 percent this year, but Gaia is flagging some recent price action in the stock. And, you know, you go back and maybe September, August, it looked like Facebook started sputtering. 
It's interesting, right? I think it made an all-time high in August around 304 or so. And you see where it's trading now. It's down 12% from that all-time high on a tape that's been pretty unbelievable. And its stock has underperformed. Tim has brought this up. The reasons to be worried about Facebook are there. We've talked about them. I'm sure the other guys can espouse as well. But I was reading some uh, Kierkegaard over the weekend, just thumbing through some stuff. Mel, you know I like to do that on Sundays instead of watching the NFL. And it got to me to thinking there is an existential risk here to Facebook that I think people really need to take into account for 2021. And that's if Facebook were to come under sort of the auspices of ESG investing. And if that were to happen, if you were to catch wind of that, I think it could be really, really uh, deleterious, a Dennis Gartman word, to the share price. So you haven't heard anything about it yet, but the stock has clearly been underperforming, reasons of which we spoke about. But I think there are other reasons out there to be concerned about Facebook as we get into 2021. Do those other reasons, Tim, finally catch up? I mean, we've had those other reasons looming out there for a very long time, and it sort of didn't matter until money started going out of the big cap tech names and Facebook started feeling the pain. All of a sudden, now these other reasons, investigations, antitrust allegations, et cetera, now they're sort of front of mind. They are front of mind. And, and Guy, great job for teaching a, a, a class on you know, existentialism or Ecclesiastes or words that are <laughs> going to win you uh, Scrabble. But I, I think you have a case here where uh, the question about the, uh, the you know, the, the essence of Facebook and social media and listen to Gene Munster, who comes on our show, who we have a ton of respect for and points to social media as being all that ails, ails the world these days. Facebook has certainly got a bullseye on its back and it's got a bullseye on its back from from the, the DOJ. And I just think that, that, you know, despite all of that, look, Facebook is not. I don't think going to be broken up anytime soon by the DOJ uh, and the anti-competitive dynamics that allow them to be the monster they are. I don't see them changing. I don't like it. Uh, and I don't like Facebook. And I think it trades and it will continue to trade at a discount because I think there's issues with management and perception. Um, having said that, um, this is a stock that every time it gets so oversold, uh, I think it's you know, it, there's scarcity value right now in owning uh, social media, but, but e-commerce plays and media plays, which are effectively all the things that Facebook is. So uh, I don't run that far from the story, even though I don't like the story. We've seen it before where Facebook will, will ratchet up its e-commerce efforts and pop, the stock goes up. I mean, James, all, all they have to do is turn that knob just a little bit in terms of the, the e-commerce play of things, and, and it's, it's, it goes, the stock goes. Yeah, I think, you know, without any multisyllabic descriptions, uh, monster is the word. If you study history, you go and go to any business school's library, study what happens when the antitrust suits come on. Uh, those companies win. Those companies win in the short term. They win in the long term. They split in two, three, four, whatever. If you've built a business that antitrust suits are coming, uh, you own that business. And Facebook is an advertising juggernaut. Facebook is the controller of two thirds of the world's uh, uh, consuming public. And I think that they're going to move carefully through this situation. There is a, a backlash that comes when companies of that size and that magnitude don't handle social issues correctly. I think that privacy, uh, I think that influence from bad actors uh, in our social events um, will uh, uh, keep Facebook on its toes. But certainly, uh, uh, from a business standpoint, I don't see how this company loses. And again, I'm a student of history. If you study uh, antitrust uh, uh, cases, uh, and we've seen a couple here that are still monsters today. Microsoft went through this, right? Google went through this, right? And uh, you can't stop a business that's mastered its space 
and Facebook will prevail. And I think it's a buy at any level. Huh. The bear likes Facebook. So, Dan, do you think it's a win-win situation? Do you agree with James? Yeah, I don't disagree, but I do agree with what Tim and Guy had to say also. And here's the problem. If you just take the name off of this stock and you look at the fact that they're expected to grow earnings next year only 11%, which is probably um, pretty conservative, but sales are expected to grow uh, 25% over a year, and this thing is trading at 25 times earnings. You look at its historical valuation, and, and that's I think that's the point that James is making. It's like you buy this stock every which way, and then you tell me that they have a monopoly Oh yeah. Um, so, and then you then you tell me that the secular shift towards online advertising is that strong, and it's going to be a multi-decade sort of thing. It, it's kind of like you have to buy it. But I do agree with what Guy was saying about ESG. I, I think we're going to look back and we're going to say if consumer preferences changes about this company and their products and their services, we will be thinking about this like big tobacco and big oil in about mm. ten years from now. What a comparison. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. It might be one of the most unloved mega cap stocks out there. But one of our traders just added to his position in AT&T. We'll find out why. Plus, Gary Newman felt safest of all in cars. Will Apple shareholders feel the same way too as the tech giant drives into the auto industry? Those details and a lot more when Fast Money returns. At the UPS Store, we want to make this summer the summer of shipping, summer shipalooza, so you can start crossing items off your must-ship list, like the vintage film camera your college kid needs for class or the vase you told your mom you would send her ages ago. And with our pack-and-ship guarantee, your items arrive safe or we reimburse you. So stop by your local store today for everything you need to be unstoppable. Visit the upsstore.com slash guarantee for full details. Available at participating locations. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. Do not forget, we have got a special, supersized edition of Fast Money coming your way tomorrow and all next week. We'll be answering all your burning trading questions. So hit us up on Twitter. Send us a video with your question at CNBC Fast Money. We'll try to answer it on the show. Moving on, news of Apple getting to the car business, driving that stock 3% higher today. So what do we know? What does it mean for Apple? Let's get to Josh Lipton for the details. Hey, Josh. So, Melissa, it's easy to understand why there is so much interest in this story. Just imagine Tim Cook taking the stage there before a live audience and introducing an Apple car. New reports suggest that could be on the way, that Cook & Company could introduce a self-driving car by 2024, in fact, with its own breakthrough battery technology that would apparently lower costs and increase the vehicle's range. It's easy to understand why Cook could be interested in developing a car. The auto industry represents a big potential opportunity, a $2 trillion market. On the other hand, we know there could be challenges. For all the excitement and headlines, the auto industry is a low-margin, capital-intensive business. Still, Apple rallying today, now up nearly 80% so far this year. And check out two companies that make LiDAR sensors, a core component 
for self-driving cars. Velodyne and Luminar saw sharp gains, as did, by the way, Magna International. Apple reportedly previously engaged that company in talks about manufacturing a car, but the talks apparently petered out. Back to you all. All right. Thanks, Josh. Josh Lifton with the lowdown on the Apple car. For more, let's bring in the number one t- analyst, Apple analyst, Tony Sakanagi, senior tech analyst at Bernstein. Tony, it's great to speak with you. Thanks for having me, Melissa. So we saw the stock move higher by 3%. Why should investors be excited about the prospect of Apple getting into the car business? It seems like, um, I mean, some analysts say it's a call option. Uh, you know, it's not going to take on the manufacturing risk. But at the same time, it does seem to be outside of its core competency. It does. But many people said that about phones when Apple got into it, that, you know, this is a low margin, hyper competitive business. And Apple ultimately wouldn't succeed in that business. And, and obviously, we all know the story there. So Apple is a company that has not been afraid to enter established markets. This is a huge market, as Josh alluded to. Uh, and they have an ability to create a premium product that consumers want. And that premium product and premium price ultimately leads to better margins. So there is precedent for Apple doing it. It certainly doesn't mean that Apple will do it. This um, Project Titan, which is Apple's internal initiative uh, focused on the car industry, has been going since 2014. So we're now almost seven years into focused resources. Apple's known for dedicating resources to things and then ultimately deciding to do it or not do it or do something different. Um, So we certainly can't be assured about if and what they might do. But there is ample precedent for Apple getting into low margin businesses and getting in them late and creating a leadership position. Yeah, it it often doesn't have the first mover advantage, even though it it has a dominant position years later. Um, Tony, I'm I'm curious, though, you cover Tesla as well. So is an Apple car, let's say Apple is, is successful with its car. Is it necessarily a loss of market share for Tesla? No, it, it's not necessarily. And, and look, I think we and most people believe that Tesla over time likely will lose share. Tesla has over 20% share of the EV market today. There's no traditional car company that has more than about 10% share. Um, but it's a huge market, and that's the most important thing to note. Uh, today, the EV market is a little over 2 million units a year. Over time, that's going to go to 50 and then ultimately closer to 100 million units per year. So even if Tesla's share went from 20 to 15 percent, 15 percent of a of a huge market, a 100 million unit market is 15 million units. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of market growth there. Clearly, the incumbents, uh, the traditional, you know, um, ice vendors, as they're known, are are most at risk for losing share from many of these new EV startups. But, you know, the EV market is is going to grow at, at 20 percent a year for probably the next 20 years. So there's plenty of room for many people to grow, even if Tesla does lose share. Hey, Tony, it's Tim. So, right, that's a high growth market and it makes sense. And you outlined where they've done this with hardware, so to speak, in the past. But that's really my question. Hardware or software services slash for Apple here as it relates to the auto industry, because it seems uh, as if they can play a major, major role here and maybe even on the, the, the battery technology, but more around software services operating system. Um, would that make Apple shareholders more happy? Yeah, I mean, even in low margin businesses, Apple has found a way for it to be capital light and to generate attractive returns. Um, 
it's it's difficult to know. I think in, in 2018, Tim Cook talked a lot about autonomy and self-driving as really being Apple's focus. You know, my suspicion is maybe they feel that they've developed something or in the process of developing something novel on the battery side. And ultimately, either that is the impetus to build a whole car around it, or maybe that will be technology that they could ultimately, you know, share or license to others. Um, but a Apple has sort of a unique engineering culture where engineers work on things for long periods of time. Many of those things never see the light of day in terms of products. And I suspect that Apple has buckets of competency. You know, I think autonomous driving is one. We, it's well documented that they've been testing cars. It sounds like there may be some break breakthrough technology on the battery side. How they ultimately choose to deliver that remains to be seen. But to answer your question, yeah, this investors have rewarded Apple around services. So a high margin product or one that can have services, high margin software type services attached would, would clearly be more welcomed by the investment community. Tony, great to get your thoughts as always. Tony Sakanagi of Bernstein. Thanks for having me. Guy Dami, let's pretend we didn't know about the Apple news. Let's pretend we're, we're revealing it right here, that Apple may be reportedly looking at manufacturing a car of some sort with a partner, et cetera, et cetera. What would you guess the move in the stock would be? Yeah, it's funny. I would have guessed lower. I mean, and, and I'm going to be honest. I would have said, you know what, market's going to beat them up for this. But we're in an environment now where seemingly news like that gets rewarded. And maybe it's right to get rewarded. And, oh, by the way, you know, it's never going to happen. And I'm, I'm going to get at it again twice in one show. But, you know, for $40 billion, they could probably buy Ford and come out with the two iconic American brands partnering up for the, for the 21st century. And it would be a home run for everybody, I bet. But with that said, in terms of the stock, 137.98 was the high in September 1st. Dan Nathan has correctly said it's the best-looking chart that he's seen for a while now. I think it probably gets there. We'll see what happens at 138. All right. We've got a news alert on the New York Stock Exchange. Bob Pisani's got the details. Bob. Uh, Melissa, just uh, got a statement from the New York Stock Exchange saying uh, beginning on Monday, December 28th, the designated market makers or DMMs, who are the people who are responsible for uh, maintaining markets to buy and sell stocks, will be going remotely again and leaving the floor. The floor brokers, who are the people who have orders to buy and sell stocks, will continue to work on the floor. This is really a sign of the times. It's not terribly surprising. Uh, we've seen an increase in COVID cases recently. Of course, there's been a couple of new COVID cases on the floor recently. And I think out of abundance of caution, uh, they are uh, they are moving those DMMs to remote locations. I don't think this is going to make much of a difference at all in the trading activity. The NYSE floor has only been about 25% of its prior strength, even throughout the last several months. They've been going through split shifts on the floor. So uh, the staffing on the floor is still fairly thin. I think the important thing here is it's sort of open-ended right now. They haven't announced when they're going to bring them back. Obviously, they're going to wait for a vaccine and to see if the current outbreaks or the severity of the outbreak drops a little bit. Melissa? By having these folks stay at home, Bob, is this get, get the NYSE back to pandemic staffing level lows? Well, the, the NYSE is essentially working remotely. Uh, the staff of the New York Stock Exchange, I mean, in terms I, of I'd the ones on the floor working on the floor. Yeah, well, as I said, there's only 25% of the of the of the number of people who are working there compared to a year ago is only 25% what it is now. So it'll probably go down to even half of that level at this point. 
but again, it doesn't change the obligations of the market makers. They're working remotely and their obligations to maintain fair and orderly markets are, are still there. One of the great things that's happened here, Melissa, is that the DMMs have been able to work remotely. The system actually has worked very well, the technology around it. So there's been not a lot of glitches. The problem is just there's a belief that having people on the floor interacting, particularly around things like IPOs, adds value. It's part of the NYSE business model. It's not there as a museum, the, the floor of the NYSE. It's there to make money. And the people who run the NYSE, ICE, believe that it adds value having people on the floor. So I think this is a bit of a setback for them, but it's not surprising. I think, though, the overall, they'll still maintain the same obligations for fair and orderly markets. Unless IPOs continue. start going away, too, in favor of direct listings. But that's a whole other conversation. Bob, thank you. It's good to see you. Bob Pisani. <laughs> okay. Coming up, Boeing getting its first big 737 MAX order in the U.S. Is this a sign the company is back? we got the details straight ahead. But first, AT&T tanks, even as one bullish Wall Street firm calls it the most unloved mega cap in the S&P. So is it really a streaming buy? We'll debate that when we're back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. Is it finally time to show some love to the most unloved mega cap in the S&P? That's what Bank of America is saying about AT&T. Analysts saying the stock only prices in bad news. Doesn't see a lot of further negative catalysts from here. Um, Tim, what do you make of that call? I like the call. I, I'm in the same boat. And, mm -hmm. and in fact, I've been adding uh, a bit to an existing AT&T position that, that I'm largely down small um, in, in, uh, uh, in absolute terms, but, but you know, when you add in the dividend and compound it, it's actually, uh, you know, it's, it's a position that's been largely flat uh, to sideways for two and a half years. The, the, the story with AT&T is the competitive landscape in the cellular business has been predatory, uh, uh, you know, to put it lightly, over the last five to ten years. And T-Mobile is a monster and has been taking market share. That's one of the big fears here. Um, I think the biggest fear is that they overpaid for media assets and that they have a huge debt pile. And that if something goes wrong, um, the, you know, First of all, the sum of the parts argument isn't really what it says it is, and that you could have a significant debt issue at some point levered 2.7 times. I actually think that this low-rate environment means they've been paying down debt, they've been pushing out maturity, they've, they've lowered their cost of capital and their interest expense, and they're actually generating free cash flow. So I think there's a lot of bad news priced in here, and I think it's very interesting stock. Guy Dami, those two things that Tim flagged, I mean, those are serious concerns. The, the, the highly competitive nature in cellular or mobile business and then also the media landscape. And we have how many streaming entries into the market in this past year alone? The, they made a bet, they being AT&T, four, five, probably six years ago, and that bet didn't pay off. I mean, whereas T-Mobile really just stayed tunnel visioned and focused on the business and became the best player in the space. And listen, if you don't believe me, just overlay a, a chart of AT&T and TMUS over the last five years, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Obviously, prior to you know John Ledger, now Mike Siebert's uh, stewardship has been tremendous. And they've stuck to their knitting, whereas ATT, you know, listen, they took a shot and it failed. I think Tim brings up good points. A lot of it's in the stock already. But then the question is, you know, how much beta are you going to have in the stock going forward? And I'd still, and, and we've said this for a while, I'd still rather be in T-Mobile than AT&T at these levels. Oh, so you did a would you rather. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll up one. I didn't. I, no, 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 no. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. You I, said no, I would rather. I didn't you did. do that. You did. You said that. Anyway, tis the season. So, Dan Nathan, would you wrap it or scrap it, AT&T? <laughs> 
Nice. I'd wrap it here. It's kind of interesting. A couple weeks ago, you saw that ramp when Disney had those um, massive, massive streaming numbers. I think people are looking at HBO Max. They're looking at their announcement of releasing their 2021 movies online on HBO Max and in theaters, if that exists, um, and seeing that they may see a big ramp there. And, and they're trying to sell every non-core asset they can. Their anime streaming service, Crunchyroll, they're trying to divest DTV. They want to pay down that debt load. So I'm with Tim here in, in 28 and a half bucks. I think the dividend probably covers you to the downside near term. Right. Coming up, a big bet on Boeing from one U.S. carrier. We'll break down what that deal means for the stocks. Plus, solar stocks shining bright this year. Why options traders think an even brighter future is in store for one name in particular. Don't go anywhere. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Boeing getting its first 737 MAX order from a U.S. carrier since a ban on the jet was lifted just last month. Phil LeBeau's got the details. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa, this is a hometown order for Boeing. It's Alaska Airlines. Now, we'd originally ordered 737 MAXs back in 2012. Well, today they have expanded that order. So as you look at shares of Alaskan Airlines, keep in mind that this is significant because you're looking at the first U.S. carrier that has said, yeah, we want more MAXs. In this case, 23 additional planes. The total order now, 68 planes, along with options, another 15, bringing the options up to 52 more planes. Earlier today on Squawk Box, the CEO of Alaska Airlines talked about the advantages that the MAX will give them on the cost side. With every delivery we take, our ownership costs are going to go down, our maintenance costs are going to go down, our fuel costs are going to go down, and our revenue should go up because the, the 737-9s have 178 seats and the Airbus aircraft they're replacing have 150. So it's, uh, I think we're really satisfied with the deal we did reach with Boeing, but the economics of this transaction are going to be good for Alaska for years into the future. You know who else is happy with this order? Boeing. Take a look at shares of Boeing. Melissa, how many times have we been on this show and I've said, okay, yeah, they lost more orders. They lost more than 1,000 MAX orders this year. But guess what? They have had 98 between Alaska and Ryanair a couple of weeks ago, 98 MAX orders this month. They still got a big hole for the year, but they're starting to turn that around. And also take a look at shares of the MAX suppliers. We're talking about GE, Honeywell, Spirit Aerosystems, our friends down in Wichita, Kansas. All of those stocks in the last month and a half, they've had a nice move higher, certainly coinciding with the ungrounding of the MAX by the FAA. Don't forget, Melissa, next week, commercial service resumes for the MAX here in the U.S. with American Airlines. You're going to be on a flight, Phil? I will be on the flight. You will be. Wow. Good for you. We hope to hear from you on that day, maybe you from will. the air. You know what will happen, Melissa? What? I'll land in New York and I'll say, felt like any other flights. Probably. Back to you. Knock on wood. Let's hope so. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau with the details there. Um, Guy Dami, you know, they make a lot about the discounts to the planes that these airlines can get. And that CEO looked pretty happy with the deal that he got. Should we care? Or does it only matter that Boeing got those orders? You know, you should care. But I think for, for the right now, I think the more important uh, news flash is that Boeing got those orders. So without question. And good for Tim. And, but also good for, for Phil for pointing out Spirit Aerosystems, which, if you recall, we talked about in mid-November and said the levered play uh, that's going to outperform Boeing is going to be SPR. And, and just listen, Boeing's done well. SPR has done extraordinarily well over the same period of time. So sometimes you've got to look downstream as well. And I look forward to Phil 
getting on that plane and landing in New York and, and you know, coming on the show. It'll be fun. I hope so. Um, James, what do you make of Boeing? This is a company that's got short-term pressure on it, and, you know, I want to look at it through the lens of short-term and long-term. And so short-term, the pressure is obviously the outlook totally hinges on the vaccine success uh, so this company can overcome COVID-19. And right now it's too soon to be optimistic because we don't know what the efficacy of the vaccine will be or how long it will take for us to be okay from a health-wise. Um, Boeing also has to restore trust with clients in the short term for the obvious reasons. And as a survival mode, thousands of people are being laid off. There's deep cuts to aircraft production, uh, indefinite halts to dividends and buybacks. We know these stories. Uh, they're selling office space. Boeing's revenues contracted by 15% on average over the past three years. And so see, these are some of the short-term issues. But let's look at the big picture in the long term and look at a 10-year chart of Boeing. This is a national security business. We depend on Boeing for our safety and for the safety of our children and our grandchildren. This company is not going anywhere. Boeing has done extraordinarily well over the long term. I like the price here. I like the fact that Boeing is taking advantage uh, of what it needs to do in this contracting environment, cleaning up its business. And I think long term, we can talk about these orders and these ticks. Uh, long term, this company is not going anywhere. And I think Boeing uh, is a good five, 10-year play, particularly here at these prices. Just look at a 10-year chart. Uh, this company will come and outperform the market. All right, we've got a news alert here on the Pfizer vaccine. Meg Terrell's got the latest. Meg. Hey, Melissa. Well, we've learned that the U.S. and Pfizer are close to a new supply deal for uh, up to 100 million additional doses of Pfizer's vaccine. And of course, this comes after lots of back and forth over these doses and the idea that they had been offered to the U.S. before Pfizer then sold them uh, to other countries. Uh, the New York Times first reported this news, and we can confirm uh, that the two parties are close to this deal. It could be announced as soon as tomorrow. Uh, my understanding from a person familiar with uh, the situation is that 70 million doses uh, potentially could be delivered in the second quarter of next year from Pfizer to the U.S. government, and those would be split over each month of that quarter, essentially from April, May, and June. Now, an additional 30 million doses are being talked about here. Uh, my understanding is they perhaps would not be ready for delivery in the second quarter, but the New York Times has reported that as part of this negotiation, the government could be using the Defense Production Act to help try to speed up the production of those doses uh, into the second quarter. Uh, this, of course, has been something we've talked about with Pfizer CEO last week, Albert Borla, uh, who said it would be helpful if the Defense Production Act were used because some supplies are running at critical levels. Uh, and something that Shep Smith asked Secretary Alex Azar about as well, why they haven't used that yet. So this negotiation has been ongoing. We are hearing it could now be announced as soon as tomorrow, which would get another 70 to 100 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. Melissa? So Meg, 70 to 100 million doses, that means 35 to 50 million more Americans would be vaccinated? That's right, uh, because it is a two-dose mm -hmm. uh, vaccination schedule. The other thing about this, though, Mel, is you know there's been this news that you can actually get six doses or sometimes even seven out of these vials of Pfizer vaccine, which you know are five-dose vials. So there actually could potentially be 20% more supply there. It really depends on how the FDA officially sort of weighs in on that. But it has said you can use the extra doses. Wow. All right, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell with some potentially good news there. Uh, Tim Seymour. That's a lot more Americans that could get the vaccine by the second quarter. That sure certainly, certainly helped the economy, I would imagine, at least people feeling a little bit better about getting out and about. 
Yeah, and I think, look, this timeline, you know, clearly is, is, is unclear. But I, I think you've got a case where the, the ability of the market to understand which of those businesses are, are in line to see some of that cyclicality. That's what we're doing with banks. Um, that's what we're doing with some of the hospitality. It's certainly what we're doing with autos. Um, so, you know, the issue for the market this week has obviously been, is this the, you know, do we, have we seen the end? And, and that's the real question. All right. Coming up, check out the solar stocks. Heating up today, we'll break down why Wall Street's going big on going green. And coming up at the top of the hour, Jim is talking to the CEO of Twilio. That exclusive only on Mad Money, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Fast Money. SunPower shares surging nearly 12% today, bringing its gains for 2020 to more than 500%. Mike Co spotted some interesting activity in the options market. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, so we saw seven times the average daily put volume, and normally we might think that that means that traders are making bearish bets. That's not necessarily the case here. This stock's been climbing a wall of worry with only four or 15 analysts having bullish recommendations on the stock. The most active options were the February 29 strike puts. I saw 10,000 of those trade for $3.40 per contract. Sellers of those puts are going to be obligated to buy the stock at 29, so obviously they're making a bullish bet. And, of course, they're only going to have the stock put to them down about 13.5% from where it's currently trading. So there are some that are making bullish bets, despite the street's overall bear sentiment on it. Well, thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe. Up next, we got your final trade. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, no surprise. I like Boeing here. I think it's not just 737 max, but getting that 787 back, and I think there's progress. James. Be careful. From Friday to Monday, S&P dropped 2.5%. Biggest drop in two months. Got to be careful here. I am long UVXY. That's my final trade. Dan. Yeah, Pfizer, a month ago, it was right here at 37. It went as high as 43. I think it goes back to 43, so I like Pfizer here. Guy Dami. The mighty Thor. A lot of pent-up demand for those units that they sell, Melissa Lee. I'm just saying, great interview by JC last night. I look forward to Jim's interviews tonight on The Mad Money. Yep, the CEO of Twilio. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.